Welcome to Criminal Perspective. I'm Chris. I'm Andrew. On this episode, we have an interview with Rick Staten. If you don't know who Rick Staten is, we're about to tell you. Rick was the exclusive art dealer for John Wayne Gacy. So he's essentially the man who's responsible for bringing Gacy's art out of prison and to the public. He also was a mortician for what was it like 20 something years or so, maybe more. Yeah. I want to say it was longer than that. Yeah. He, he had been embalming people longer than I've been alive and I'm 28 now. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, retired mortician, uh, Gacy's art dealer. He's been corresponding with inmates since the early nineties. At one point he was on, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's visiting list and then Dahmer got murdered not long after. Um, yeah, just months later. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, Crazy. He uh, there's a, there's a documentary made about him and his friend Tobias Allen back in I believe it was like '99 or 2000. It's called Collectors and it's on YouTube and it's a great film. So he was the the center of that. I think he's been in a few other films, but he's now making films himself and he has a film that he's completed and he's trying to release now called In a Madman's World about the Dean Coral Wayne Henley case in Houston, Texas, the the Texas uh, serial killings. But on this episode, uh, we we did a two-part interview with him. Uh, On this one, we're going to talk mostly about his time being Gacy's art dealer. So it's uh, very heavy on the the John Wayne Gacy on on this one. And uh, he's also going to talk about the time that he went to the Cielo Drive uh, bungalow where the, the infamous Tate LaBianca Manson family murders occurred. Just super interesting stories. The guy has a million stories to tell, and he's he's you can listen to him talk forever because he's so good at, at telling stories and everything. So uh yeah, it's it was it was really cool talking to him. And then uh next week we'll have part two of this interview where we talk about his film projects he has in the making right now, and we talk about other serial killer cases that interest him and other murderers that he corresponded with and used to visit with and things like that. Um he's known as the godfather of murder Bilia because he started collecting and selling items and relics and things related to murderers, right, Andrew? Yeah, back back in the quote unquote golden age days of the serial killers you know richard speck richard ramirez charles manson jeffrey dahmer henry lucas you've you've been to rick's house he he has oh yeah he has a he has a great collection like when i was there uh i got a few things both of the gacy paintings that are on my walls in front of me i got both from him i think they were the last of his gacy paintings he has one is actually like a pretty rare pink velour painting that literally crumbled in my hands as soon as i got it literally crumbled in my hands and i had to get it restored wow uh didn't he have ken bianchi the the hillside stranglers baby shoes or something like that yeah he had a bunch of bianchi stuff at at one time i don't know what all he has now i mean I, i went through a lot of his stuff when we were there but the room i stayed in overnight all the posters and stuff on the walls, they were the original posters and everything that was on Wayne Henley's walls when he was arrested. He talks about that in the second part of the interview, filming in a madman's world, how he obtained all of Wayne Henley's personal possessions and used them in the filming. The person who's playing Elmer Wayne Henley is actually wearing Elmer Wayne Henley's clothes that he was arrested in and things like that. And, um, it's just, yeah, because they it's, wanted to make it so realistic, as yeah. real as possible, 
Yeah, you know? yeah. So let's let's jump into this one. Like I said, we talk a lot about John Wayne Gacy and his time dealing with Gacy, and uh, we talk a, a little bit about the his visit to the the Cielo Drive Mansion, and um, it, it's super interesting. Always insanely fun to talk to Rick Staten because his his storytelling and his stories are just out of this world. So the guy has so many crazy experiences. So let's go ahead and get to it. This is part one of our two-part interview with Rick Staten. With the world-famous Rick Staten. What's up, Rick? <laughs> uh, just being world-famous, man. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's all you can be. Uh, good to uh, good to be here. Glad to uh, talk with you guys. Yeah, so we can start out with what everybody knows about, you know, is Gacy, and then segment on after that. But so I guess the first thing would be, how did you ever get hooked up with him and start writing him? And I know you talked to other people, and we'll eventually get into the West Memphis Three and Lucas and Tool and Henley and all the what do they call them golden age fellas yeah i call them the old school guys that are all dead now for the most part but yeah <laughs> pretty much uh as far as this whole the way the whole thing started uh, for me it uh, started with uh correspondence with gacy um i've told the story a few times i'll try to make it sort of brief here i was at work one day uh we didn't have any funerals or anything going on everybody was sitting around watching tv and sort of kicked back on the couch and the chairs and so forth and one of my co-workers says uh you know hey rick you, you collect weird stuff you might find this interesting so he hands over this tabloid just some rag uh, i don't know the national Enquirer or something you know on that level and uh there's a caption that reads uh something like uh uh serial killer is uh the darling of the counterculture art world or subculture or something like that um so i read the caption i'm like you know what the hell is this and of course it turns out gacy had painted uh i don't know five or six paintings that were entered at the chicago world's fair or there at the chicago state fair rather and they were purchased immediately and uh, so he's decided to keep painting, of course, because he was such a big money whore. Uh, the, the guy was just obsessed with, you know, money and, and make it. It seems weird that, you know, making money in prison because uh, you could only buy he could only buy, you know, cigars and potato chips and that kind of stuff. But he was just obsessed with money. Um, so he starts painting from, you know, inside the prison. So, of course, I wrote him a letter and. Uh, first time I ever wrote to any incarcerated inmate or even took an interest in any murderers or serial killers or anything on a, a personal basis. You know, I, I read all the life magazines and the paperbacks and so forth. But, you know, this is the first time I ever actually made any uh, personal contact with him. So uh, to my surprise, uh, I don't know, a week maybe after I wrote him, uh, I get an, a letter. Well, I get a, an envelope uh, typewritten uh that uh, contained a price list inside it that basically was all it was there was no letter from him or anything personal so i looked it over the paintings were unbelievably cheap like um the small canvas panels like the christ heads and that kind of stuff uh skull clown etc were you know as as inexpensive as i don't know 35 bucks on up to pogo the clown which was like I think 55, 65 bucks maybe at the most. 
Uh, so I write him back and I buy three paintings. Uh, which I received uh, shortly after. I, I wrote him a letter, of course. Hey, you know, I don't remember what I told him, just, you know, an introductory letter and told him what I did for a living and this kind of stuff. So he starts writing me. And uh, then he, of course, sent the three paintings to me. By that time, by the time I received the first three, uh, he had been told by the Department of Corrections that what he was doing was tantamount to a business venture, which wasn't allowed, of course, in the Department of Corrections for an inmate, etc. So I was like, well, how on earth uh, could I go about getting, you know, more artwork? He says, well, you'd have to come up here and visit me, which I thought, well, shit, that might be fun, you know, <laughs> at least it'll be something I could tell my grandkids. That's pretty weird. So I was like, yeah, but, you know, what do I do? He's like, well, I got to put you on my list. You get approved, blah, blah, blah. So uh, I had my a friend, a good friend of mine um, who I played music with at the time, uh, ride up there with me just because it was a long ride. We had some friends in Memphis with whom we could stay. And, uh, you know, it was just like. I was kind of freaked out. I thought it might be good to have somebody with me, you know, just so I don't sit there for four hours talking to a guy that I've never met before, you know, trying to, you know, make conversation. So anyway, my buddy Don rides up there with me. Right. And, uh, we pull up to the, the gates of, it was death row kind of sits up, uh, at least in Chester, uh, where Menard, uh, correctional facility is sits up on a, really high ridge that kind of looks down on uh, the Mississippi River. And uh, it's right on the levee there. It was an old insane asylum, a sanitarium, whatever, which they converted into uh, the death row facility. And that was kind of creepy in itself. You know, we pull up and neither of us ever having gone to a Department of Corrections before. We're looking at these huge walls all around it. And just everything was kind of unsettling. So, of course, we get out of the car and nervously walk up. And, of course, the next thing we know, we're being searched and put in little intermittent uh, cell blocks, you know, with the doors clanging behind us and, you know, making our way to into the actual heart of the prison there. So it was a weird first experience. Anyway, so we, uh, we get to the visitation area. We realize that there's not going to be any glass between us or any screen. There's not going to be anything between us. It's a, it's actually, a, uh, well, what's now referred to uh, as a contact visit, which was kind of weird. You know, we weren't expecting that. So we uh, kind of stand at the end of this hallway, this long corridor that goes back to the cells. And up comes this kind of portly, very, very pale sickly image of this this almost specter like ghostly image comes up you know from the shadows into what little bit of light there was in there because of course there are no windows anywhere in the place it's all uh, this dismal artificial fluorescent lighting which made Gacy look even more pale and translucent so he Gets up there and, you know, we're, um, I'd read, of course, all the books I could get my hands on, the paperbacks and all that, and saw the photos, what, what photos were available, you know, at the time of his arrest and so forth. And it just didn't look like him at all, right? So he extends his uh, manacled hands. His uh, feet were manacled as well uh, at, the off, at the ankles. Extends his hand to shake mine. And I was thinking, okay, this guy was a contractor, kind of a big burly guy, but his hand, it was like shaking a lady's hand. It was all soft and puffy and uh, pale and, you know, just wasn't what I expected, you know. He was like really in, 
out of shape. Of course, he'd been in prison for whatever it was at that time, I guess, uh, I don't know, eight years or so, uh, sitting in a cell for 23 hours a day. So, you know, not getting a lot of exercise. It was just, it just wasn't what I anticipated, what I expected. So we step off into this little small room, probably, uh, I don't know, eight by 12 little tiny room and sat down at this little table, no guard, no anybody, no supervision whatsoever. Uh, there was a little monitor up on the wall, some little security camera, which I'm still not convinced was even turned on or plugged in, but we, we didn't, you know, you didn't feel threatened or anything like that. Um, you know, the, he, like I said, he was just a kind of a big chubby, soft, you know, blob that there was no danger, no element, which is kind of, I won't get off on this subject, but that's what kind of pissed me off when I was reading that bogus book that Jason Moss wrote, The Last Victim or whatever. Gacy was like, I can't think of anything uh, harmless enough to compare him to. You know, there was no way this guy was ever going to overpower anybody or, you know, he just, there, there was no danger. Again, his uh, wrists were cuffed and his uh, legs were manacled with a, a length of chain as well. So there's nothing he could do if he wanted to. But anyway, so we visited for four hours, which was just excruciating. You know, it, the first couple hours went pretty well because there were all kinds of questions, you know, that we had talked about on the way uh, from Baton Rouge, you know, that we wanted to ask the guy. We kind of sort of had a, an, an agenda, like kind of had an idea what we wanted to talk about. Uh, but after that second hour, then things kind of, you know, started to drag. So we just let him talk. And that's when I realized uh, for the first time ever that God almighty, this guy just likes to brag. He likes to lie. Uh, he's obsessed with money. He tells stories about how the media has, you know, mislabeled him as, you know, this psychotic murdering madman when in actuality, uh, this is so cliche by now, when in actuality, you know, there were 12 different sets of keys to his residence and all this bullshit, you know. Uh, I do remember, ironically, the going you know, when we left after that first day, because we came back the very next day and visited for four more hours and brought paintings out with us and all this stuff. But I do remember going home and Don and I kind of like looking at each other like, well, what do you think, man? Do you, you, you think that it's possible this guy could be innocent? And well, I don't know, man. I mean, he, you know, he sure kind of sounds convincing. And then. By the second day after that visit, we we were absolutely certain he was fucking guilty as sin, you know. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's like, for instance, I, I remember one time he was, uh, if you've ever seen this Life magazine uh, gatefold, it's like two full pages of him as Patches the Clown holding some balloons. And I remember him uh, telling me about that. He says, notice anything, notice anything in five. Uh, funny about those balloons and i was like well let's see they say bresler's ice cream on them is it you know were, were you like bresler's you know ice cream clown or whatever i i don't get it he's like no look underneath there 33 flavors 33 victims 33 flavors and i was like oh fucking hell <laughs> it was wow. almost like he was you know bragging or boasting or there were several on several occasions he would make a reference to his body count, you know, all the while, you know, proclaiming his innocence. So he really got off on that. He, he it was bragging almost like a BTK sort of obnoxious, not so subtle bragging, but he never really came out and, and confessed per se or discussed anything. But 
as you if you saw that interview that he did with the uh, TV guy and uh, the news anchor in uh, Chicago, I believe it was, it was showing him how to do the rope trick, right, with a rosary. So, yeah, you know what I mean? He, he was like, uh, I'm guilty, but I'm not ever going to admit I'm guilty. It was that yeah, kind of yeah. thing. So I, I never, ever again, for one second, ever uh, doubted, you know, his guilt. But yeah, so the second day we visit for, you know, four hours. One thing I remember is uh, meeting one of the Cocorales brothers uh, was right across the hall meeting with, uh, you know, a, a relative in the next room. Um, so it was the first time I'd ever met him. Uh, Gacy referred to him as Coco. Um, likewise, the way that we would be there, of course, uh, from, say, 10 in the morning to like 2 in the afternoon and at the end of the visit, the guy would come in, the, the Department of Corrections guy would come in with a Polaroid camera and a big thing of film and take all the photos you wanted for a couple of bucks a piece. Uh, so Gacy would always keep half the photos and we would take the other, I would always take the other half of the photos. Usually he would sign them for me and that kind of stuff. He really got off on this celebrity killer shit because he, you know, he loves signing things, but of course he would always make you, you know, ask him to do it or beg him to do it or whatever. But of course he always relented because it, you know, swelled his ego up so much. But I remember the, the one thing that was, that made me realize I never, ever want to go to prison. And this is just one reason. Uh, when it was uh, lunchtime, like around noon, the guards would bring in, you know, these styrofoam, uh, takeout containers, right, and put them on the table. So there's one for Gacy, one for me, and one for my buddy. And this was on every visit, you know, where there was always a lunch. And he told me that uh, the way that worked was that uh, all the guys on death row who didn't have a visitor that day would sacrifice their lunch for the inmate who did have visitors. And then, you know, the, the favor was always returned, you know. Uh, so everybody's guest, you know, was able to eat. So I remember opening up this uh, styrofoam container, and I don't know what the hell it was, but it absolutely was not food. It was uh, <laughs> something that sort of looked like mashed potatoes, kind of, but didn't taste like anything I'd ever tasted. There was some hideous fillet of some kind of breaded thing that I guess was supposed to be catfish, but... Anyway, it was the worst fucking food I've ever tasted in my life. And, of course, I'm trying to be polite. I don't know why. Trying to be polite to John Wayne Gacy and, you know, eat all the food. Of course, he was just, like, inhaling it. Uh, but Don and I were kind of, like, taking little bites and sort of, oh, yeah, man, this ain't bad. You know? <laughs> Good old shit on a shingle. <laughs> exactly. It was worse, man. It was just absolutely fucking horrible. But anyway, yeah, so uh, we take a bunch of Polaroids and uh, wind up our, you know, second day of you know, my first visitation with Gacy and uh, he's brought out when he comes out for the uh, visit for the second visit, the second day, he brought with him this gigantic stack of paintings, which consisted of everything from Pogo to patches to high ho this and high ho that some Christ paintings and uh, oh, and he even brought out some uh, velour, you know, Mickey Mouse and I don't know, uh, the clown images, uh, Emmett Kelly and so forth. So I remember taking those out and, and, you know, they were gifts, of course, because he couldn't sell them. And, of course, the second I got home, you know, he's on the phone. He's calling me on the telephone to sort out with me how much each one was going to be. And, uh, you know, uh, we, you need to you need to put a price list together and decide what your markup's going to be. And, you know, it's almost like I was talking to my fucking CPA. It was just he was <laughs> so pushy about it. 
And I think that was probably the worst part of my relationship with that guy is that I had to talk to, he called my house literally every day, three to six times a day. It's often dreaming up things to talk about. Typically the conversations were, were just riddled with, you know, homoerotica, you know, uh, there was always about a hundred blowjob references and, you know, uh, he was constantly talking about he was always a, a pitcher, never a catcher. And I mean, just these things that are burned in my brain that just, you know, are never going to leave because he that's all he talked about on the phone. And I know for a fact that that was the same conversation he had with everybody else that he talked to on the phone as well. Uh, it just seemed like the guy was sitting there, you know, jerking off the whole time that, you know, he was on the phone with everybody because that's all he I guess since he hadn't had sex with boys, you know, since he was uh, arrested, that that was the closest he could come to it, you know, it was just uh, perving off, you know, rhetorically over the phone with these young guys out in, you know, La La Land in America that, you know, he would uh, call constantly. They would, they had a telephone that had a really long, long cable on it that they would kind of roll down the, uh, the corridor of death row and each inmate could, you know, reach the telephone receiver through their cell and i mean he would just talk forever you know what i mean i know i'm a fine one to talk because i i never shut up either but i mean <laughs> i never got a word in edgewise with fucking gacy let me tell you um it was just insanity it was really really weird but anyway yeah so we discussed how we were going to sell the paintings uh how much the price was going to be and you know what my new p.o box number was going to be et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that was it, you know, then we, he would, uh, of course, start he, all the letters he got. He would immediately shoot out a reply uh, as far as regarding my art. You'll have to go through Rick Staten and Baton Rouge. I just made a deal with him. I was like, look, I'll do this for you. I'll drive up here and pick these paintings up and and sell them for you. But it, un, with the understanding that nobody gets a Gacy painting unless they go through me. I want I'm your exclusive art dealer or we don't have a deal. Uh, so that worked out really well. Um because I was taking my cut and spending it on, I collected vintage movie memorabilia from the 50s, you know, sci-fi horror films. So I just wanted to buy movie posters. I didn't really care so much about his paintings. But I mean, I would, I'd have like 200 of his paintings at any given time, you know, and then mail them out, of course, as he would uh, have people send me money. So, and then, of course, I would send money to his inmate account in increments. Sometimes I would send the money to his sister uh, if it was really large amounts of money, uh, but typically I'd uh, send it, you know, to his, uh, inmate account. How close were you in contact with him up to his execution? A, a long story short, about a year before his execution and maybe less, maybe nine months, I suppose he, uh, his nephew surfaced just popped up out of nowhere. One of his, uh, uh sister's uh, sons. I won't say his name, but anyway, he popped up and I think he did so uh, at the behest or the bidding of this guy who was uh, like a memorabilia, a movie memorabilia. Uh, he sold celebrity autographs, that kind of stuff. And he kind of latched on to uh, Gacy's nephew and, you know, kind of pushed him into, yeah, man, we need to, you know, I guess he found out how much success I was having, uh, you know, selling his, uh, Gacy's artwork. And, you know, he was like, yeah, we need to get a cut of that as well. So 
Gacy sends him, I don't know, five, six paintings or whatever. And then he sends me this letter explaining, yeah, look, uh, I just want to let you know, I, I sent uh, some of my paintings. My nephew wanted to sell some. It's not going to do. It's not anything that's going to, you know, interfere with what you and I have, et cetera, et cetera. By that time, I was tired of getting, you know, six phone calls a day from Gacy and being bitched out because I didn't send his, you know, $150 at, you know, 10 minutes earlier or whatever it was. It just got to be a pain in the ass. My wife fucking hated him calling the phone. I, there's, uh, We had one of those old-fashioned, well, back in those days, it wasn't old-fashioned, but, uh, you know, answering machines that... Uh, where the outgoing message was on one of those little mini cassettes. And uh, it was always, you know, this is a collect call from Bernard Correctional Center inmate, John Gacy. And when she, <laughs> when she would hear that, her skin would just crawl. And she was like, you need to get rid of that son of a bitch, you know. So <laughs> we've got a son and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So by that time, I, he was getting on my nerves. And when he told me that he had, you know, uh, sent his, uh, his nephew these paintings, I was like, you know what, man? You breached our contract. I've been straight up and honest with you. I've never cheated you out of a dollar. I had all those goddamn books printed up locally here for you and sold those, those, uh, whatever it was, more letters from Mr. Gacy or whatever it was called. Uh, you know, I was for, for such a sleazy creep, you know, I was, uh, very honest with him and very, you know, straight up. And, of course, it was in my best interest to do so if I wanted to continue making, you know, easy money and, and have this relationship with this asshole. But anyway, I was just, I don't know, I was just uh, pissed off that day. So I told him, you know what, you let your nephew sell all your paintings. I'm not doing, you know, I got nothing else to say to you. And uh, kind of just told him to fuck off at that point. And, of course, he sent me a million letters asking me to reconsider and because he had always, his sister even sent me a letter, I don't know, like two or three years before saying, yeah, John speaks very highly of you. You're the only person who's not taken advantage of him and he knows he can trust you and blah, blah, blah. And he could trust me. You know, I was, I've never like cheated anybody, um, but I'd had enough of him. All that said, uh, finally, after I, I sent him a couple of letters back saying, look, I told you, fuck off. I'm not interested. You broke our agreement. I, you know, I, I don't feel I can trust you. That's funny. I can't trust John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, so I just told him, you know, to fuck off. Cause by that time I'd latched on to, uh, Elmer Wayne Henley and some other, you know, the, 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 whatever old school big guys and, uh, and had put them in my catalog, my little mail order catalog and was selling their art, which really drove Gacy crazy because he was, he didn't like, if you want to call it the competition, he didn't like that. He didn't do any. I've even got letters where he says, you know, I don't want to be in the same category with with Henley and these other guys. And I'm like, really? Because if I recall, you cited Dean Coral as your inspiration for all this shit that you did, you know. But anyway, uh, so to answer your question, didn't hear from him uh, probably for like six months, I suppose. And the day before his execution, and I mean, like, I don't know, probably 30 hours before he was actually lethally injected. My phone rings and I'm at the house, you know, ring, ring. You have a collect call from an ardent, you know, blah, blah, blah. John Gacy. No, no, no. He didn't say that. He's like, when it came time to say his name, he says, Rick, we need to talk. And of course, I didn't pick up. It was like, fuck you. You're going to die tonight anyway or tomorrow night. You know, fuck you. I got we don't have anything to talk about. Uh, and I, sometimes I regret that. And other times I'm kind of proud that I did that. I, I, you know, I, 
there's nothing he could have possibly said other than an apology, which I don't think he uh, has in him or had in him. Uh, but yeah, by that time he had already had all these visits from Jason Moss and all these other guys that I absolutely had no respect for and nothing but contempt for, because it was very clear, you know, what, what these guys were doing, you know, they were making money off of them. Right. In Moss's case, we know what he did, you know, uh-huh. uh, it's it amazes me that so many people, and I guess it's people that, you know, don't, haven't visited an inmate and certainly didn't visit Gacy, but how many people were sucked into believing all of that bullshit and even made a, a, a movie about it. You know, it's just, uh, but you know, like I said, to, to make all these, to, to make the world believe that, oh yeah, you know, Gacy was running the place. Let me tell you something. Nobody despised John Wayne Gacy more than those corrections officers. And I, let me tell you how I know that. Because every time I walked out of there with all those paintings under my arm, you could feel the fucking hatred coming off of those guys onto me. I mean, it was like, and uh, Gacy would have you believe that, yeah, these guys, yeah, they don't want to. They don't want to mess with me. You know, Gacy would have you believe, you know, that he was uh, running the place. You know, he was, uh, you know, the, the king of the roost. But that was not the case. And and there was no way that Moss was ever in any situation where he and Gacy were able to, you know, that there was going to be any kind of kissing or making out or rape or uh, attempted rape. That's all just bullshit uh, in his book and certainly in the movie, you know, but. I just can't believe how many people bought it and believe it. I've had people that like these 20 something, you know, murder groupies or whatever that were actually arguing with me when I, when I would say this <laughs> on some other site, defending Jason Moss's, you know, writings, you know, yeah. I'm like, how the fuck would you know if he's telling the truth or not? You know, how, what, why are you so willing to swallow all of this naive bullshit? It's, you know, to, that he made up to sell a book. I don't know. Now it's turned into a, you know, let's trash Jason Moss, you know, Moss's memory thing here. But and yeah. I mean it to be like that. But I think I would be less I'd be disingenuous not to point that out to all the people that have read the book and seen the movie. You know, I'm not jealous of its popularity, but uh, shit, you know, maybe I should have made up a bunch of stuff and wrote a book. You know, <laughs> yeah. by all accounts of people who actually knew Gacy, it's they're so drastically different from Moss's account, you know? Absolutely. I'm, I'm telling you, there there was not one iota of truth. I mean, it was true that he wrote to him and, and Gacy probably did make a few pervy, you know, uh, comments about his little brother or whatever. But, you know, and, and it was a creepy experience the first few times you talked to him on the phone. You know, just because you knew who he was and his reputation and so forth. But after that, it was like the conversation we're having, you know, it's just not any big deal anymore. Because by the time you've talked to somebody 500 times, it's just, yeah, it's Gacy. You know what I yeah. mean? And, yeah. and Moss made it out to be like it was some, you know, big horrifying. Oh, I was terrorized. I was stalked. I was this, that and the other. That's what people want. That's what people expect. And that's what they want to expect. And Moss just capitalized on that. So. Absolutely. He, he gave the publisher what they were willing to publish. So a couple more questions about Gacy and then we'll move on. These are from listeners. One wants to know, did John Wayne Gacy really have other inmates paint for him? And if so, did you sell these as well? Uh, the answer to that is yes. Now that he's dead, I'm no longer <laughs> bound to secrecy. Uh, although it's not as much as you would think. 
the only person that uh, ever uh, did any painting, the only paintings that were ever done and sold by me and Gacy uh, were the bird sets. If you've got a set of cardinals or blue jays or whatever, those were uh, painted by Coco, uh, that Cocorales guy. Andrew oh, is wow. it? Cocorales. It was Andrew. It, it certainly was. I would have to look at the letters again. At that time, I knew who the, the Chicago Ripper crew was, but it just wasn't a crime I was really interested in. I knew there were two Cocorales brothers, et cetera, but I always got those confused. But here's I, when Gacy, and he told me that early on. He's like, he told me that everything was his, and, and it was. If you've got a skull clown or, or whatever, a hi-ho this or that, Gacy did it. Well, unless some asshole forged it, you know, after he died, I, there's a lot of that floating around out there. But if it's numbered on the back and all this, you know, if it's if it was done, you know, if it was from Gacy, legitimately, Gacy painted it the way he this. These are Gacy's words, not mine. I was like, well, so, John, how why should we sell these bird sets if you didn't paint them? Because you'll notice that Cocorales never signed the bird sets. John Gacy, typically in red ballpoint pen, signed his full name, usually John Wayne Gacy. He says his uh, theory on that was his defense, I should say, on that was, uh, well, we got him listed on the prices as uh, uh, John, G John Wayne Gacy's signature bird sets. And that's my signature. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but it's still fucking misleading. It makes, you know, it's, it makes it sound like you painted the birds. Well, we're leaving it just like it is. Uh, I, I, Cocorales paints them, I sign them, and we're selling them as John Wayne Gacy's signature bird sets. So I just never said anything one way or the other. To be honest with you, though, I rarely sold any of those damn bird sets. Those were probably the least popular of all the paintings that came out of Menard during those days. Um they were. I just thought they were fucking boring. I mean, when you can get a skull clown or Pogo the clown, are you going to order a bird painting? You know, so that's funny uh, knowing that now because I think that would make them more valuable. Yeah, I don't know. I never thought about it really. I mean, yeah, you got something painted by Cocorales at Gacy signed, so really you kind of got a double hitter there, you know, in a way. Yeah. So it's just a boring image. That's all. So. Yeah. Okay. So one more question with Gacy. Uh, have you had any of Gacy's victims, family members, reach out to you and ask you to stop selling his artwork? Never. Not I. In fact, I'm glad you asked that question because, uh, and as much as I know people are tired of hearing me drone on and on about John Wayne Gacy, uh, this a question I've never uh, answered before. Um, the uh, I got a, a couple of uh, inv no, I got several actually invitations. And keep in mind, this is back in like 1990. So these talk shows, Geraldo and uh, Mari Povich, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, a million of those. Right. And I got several invitations. And of course, they were like uh, blowing me up to a point. Yeah, we'll uh, have a you know, uh, we'll fly you up here. We'll have a limousine pick you up and take you to the hotel, you know. And I'm thinking, yeah, and then you'll fucking crucify me and edit everything I say and make me look like a bigger asshole on television than people already think I am. So, no, I'm not going to do that. So um, I could have, I guess, confronted uh, victims, you know, in a, if I wanted to set myself up like a naive fool. Uh, but I was never going to put myself in that position. But to be perfectly blunt or perfectly honest, rather, um, I, you know, I didn't feel like I could justify what I did because I, I, to this day, I still feel like, you know, it was pretty scummy what I did. 
uh, I don't regret it so much today, but back then I felt like, well, maybe I am glorifying murderers and serial killers. I, I don't, I don't feel like I am today because now the people glorifying murderers and serial killers are fucking Netflix and, uh, you know, Life magazine and, you know, so on and so forth. Everybody's jumped on the true crime bandwagon. I, I did a, an interview recently up in Long Island and uh, the guys were on camera. For, it was uh, some kind of thing like a sizzle reel that was going to be used to pitch the idea of this collection I was appraising uh, for some kind of a like. There were four different uh, uh, entities uh, like Court TV, Reels, and I forget the other two, but uh, it was to, the purpose was to pitch, you know, multi-episodic, uh, you know, kind of like the Bundy Netflix things uh, about these people's uh, collection of artwork. And um, I remember telling the guy, you know, he was he asked a similar question. Uh, are you are you surprised at how popular, you know, uh, that uh, the so-called true crime genre is? <clears throat> I was like, yeah, I said, when I first started selling Gacy art, there was no such thing as a true crime section or, a, you know, you didn't go to Barnes and Noble or any bookstore and go to the true crime section. You know, you had to go to nonfiction or sociology or something like that. And there were very few books even then about murder cases uh, per se. Uh, I said, now, you know, everything's changed. Uh, and I said what I just mentioned. I said, now you got people like Netflix, you know, uh, uh, glorifying murderers and serial killers. I said the other day I uh, was in my truck driving down the street and I hear uh, iHeartRadio is now offering uh, what it was something like uh, four of your favorite true crime movies on, you know, the i iHeartRadio True Crime Podcast. I'm thinking, holy shit. You know, now all of a sudden, you know, true crime is really hot. I, in the interview, I kind of pretended to look at my watch, my wristwatch, right, and go, well, it took y'all 30 years, but, you know, y'all finally arrived. You finally, you know, caught up. That's good. You know, now all of a sudden it's it's okay. But back when I was doing it, I was an asshole because I was glorifying serial killers. And now... 30 years after Bundy's death, you have to, uh, y'all condescend your own audience and tell people, you know, girls, calm down, you know, to stop talking about how handsome Ted Bundy was. It just, things have just, you know, just, I'm not knocking it, but it's just kind of weird how in 30 years it's gone from, you know, such a controversial or shameful thing uh, to, you know, hey, well, everybody's into true crime and everybody's into killers and murderers now. You know, that's all that's on television. But, yeah, I, I, to answer your question, uh, 15 minutes later, no, no one ever <laughs> uh, no one ever contacted me. No, I never received one bit of hate mail. Um, you know, there were a few people, you know, in my group of friends or my uh, wife's family, you know, that were like, I don't see how you can do that. I don't know why you would want that in your house. You know, that kind of shit. But, you know, nothing that was that was really uh, threatening or, or hateful or anything like that. And certainly not from any uh, of Gacy's victims. It did kind of break my heart to see, you know, some of those mothers, you know, when they were interviewed about how their son never came back and then was found in a crawl space. I mean, you know, I've got a son, you know, and it, I can't even imagine that. But. Again, the ghouls far outnumber the damn uh, victims, it seems like. So, people.
getting on you for it being tasteless and then but now it seems kind of like it vindicates your guilt a bit with how things are are going to true crime and all that so exactly and and it's what you just said uh, kind of is a valid point about it being tasteless but keep in mind back in those days especially in 1990 everything it was all about you know as far as something uh having appeal it was typically like kitschy uh, and cool to you know shock value was sort of like you know almost like uh, the it was almost like a punk rock uh uh, uh what i want to say comparison like you know like a, a red mohawk you know or a safety pin through your cheek is whatever it didn't make a whole lot of sense but it shocked people and and you you got a lot of attention and all that so when people like like john waters or johnny depp or whatever with these guys would buy these paintings you know it was it's not because oh that's a really great clown painting man that's real look at how beautiful that is it was because of the asshole that painted it you know and it was that's why i could never really take any of it seriously I, i've always been kind of flippant and and you know joked about it you know it's always been a tongue-in-cheek thing who can take this i mean this is a fucking cartoon this is an it's not even really art you know uh who can take this seriously it's, it's because this See that painting? You know, guess who painted that? You know, guess how many guys he killed? You know, that's that was the whole point of it. You know, it was never no one ever bought that garbage, you know, because of Gacy's paintings because, oh, that's such a lovely piece of art. It, it's I don't know. It was just a shock value thing. The whole the whole thing was just a big kind of a big, sick, dark joke to me. Well, it still is kind of. I mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's not like suddenly it has credibility now as real art. You know, it's still a. You know, just a bunch of bullshit that, <laughs> like all the other murder art out there. Although some of the inmate art is actually kind of nice, you're not buying it for that. You know, you're still you're buying. Not, it. Definitely not putting Otis Tool or Henry Lucas art on your walls by any means. It, exactly. You know, it's it's like like some of uh, Ken Bianchi's, uh, some of the Hillside Strangler guy. Uh, some of his art is actually quite good, and I could name a whole bunch of other people as well. But you're not buying it because it's good art. You're buying it because uh, the Hillside Strangler painted that, man. And that's why it's worth money. It's not because it's such a beautiful piece of artwork. It's worth money because, you know, and, and it's sought after because of the sick bastard that, you know, pr pr produced the art, you know? Right. Is, is, isn't is that how I think you maybe you sold a piece to Trent Reznor or something and then you got into the uh, Cielo Drive House? Yeah, there was a lime-colored uh, uh, Gacy Christ as he called it, the monolithic Christ. It was always a black Christ head on different colored backgrounds. This one was like a really bright lime green. And he wasn't producing those. Well, he was producing them when I first met him, but he, I don't know that he'd ever sold one. So th that one absolutely had to have come you know, through me. And it was like the first one we go in, of course, we're shitting our pants at how cool this is, you know. The, I mean, that house hasn't even been there for, what, over a decade now. It's been demolished. So we're like, oh, my God, you know, it's just like, it's just like it looked in Helter Skelter, you know. <laughs> we were just really amazed, and we were photographing everything. When we go through the door, which formerly had pigs scrawled on it in blood, the first thing we see is, is Gacy's lime-colored Christ painting up on the mantle inside the living room. I'm like, fuck, I can't get away from this asshole no matter how many millions wow. of miles I drive, you know? What year was that? Uh, Probably 92, 
92 or I'd probably 92, I would think, around 92. Uh, I went with two other guys. Uh, one was a, a, a really I, one of my favorite collectors in the world, Nick Bugas. And uh, the other guy, uh, was a guy is a guy named Andy Gore, who has uh, uh, he's got a silkscreen business uh, called uh, Underground Screen Prints, I believe. And the way we got in was Andrew actually had sold some of his uh, T-shirts. So he sold them to the Ramones and so forth. But anyway, someone from the Shiela Drive uh, residence ordered them. And when he saw the address, of course, being a huge Manson freak, you know, he's like, oh, my God. So he contacted him. Hey, if we were to come out to California, would, would it be cool if we stopped by there, you know? And uh, so he got permission. And thank God I was really good friends with him and uh, <laughs> got invited. And the three of us uh, went up there and just, oh, it was just, we had this amazing time. We were up there literally until dark, you know, up in the Hollywood Hills and uh, going in every room. And uh, it was, oh, it was just amazing. But yeah, that's how we got invited was through uh, Andy's uh, silkscreen t-shirts. Yeah, I saw the I saw the the home video clip on collectors, and you look like you were foaming at the mouth. <laughs> oh God, I mean, it was just amazing. And and the thing about it was, you know what? And this will tell you what uh, year it was. Uh, after we left, I think we were there in I don't know, maybe it was August, maybe it was June, July, August, something like that. But I know that the following November, so just a couple, maybe three months after our visit, uh, they were demolishing the place. Uh, and putting, you know, a big McMansion, you know, like covering every square inch of the property. I was kind of surprised because I know in, in Helter Skelter, in the book, Helter Skelter, they show the, um, like the aerial view, you know, of the roof and everything. I even climbed up on the roof and got a couple of those cedar shingles off the top uh, for souvenirs and got bricks out of the fireplace and all kinds of great shit. Um, but uh, I was surprised at how small it was. It really was just kind of like a little bungalow. You know, it wasn't some big mansion, like a movie star mansion or whatever. It was just kind of a big, uh, you know, like a ranch-style bungalow. And um, it was, you know, it was it had three bedrooms and, a you know, a pool and all this stuff. But it just wasn't like what you would think the Beverly Hillbillies lived in, you know. And I'd never really looked at it that closely. Um, but, yeah, it was, uh, it was replaced. I think the whole, every inch of property now was covered in, you know, house. But though I've never been up there, I know they changed the gate and everything. It was weird because they still had the uh, the gate opener uh, from inside the property. They still had that same push button gate opener that you saw with the blood dripping off of it uh, in the book. Still had the same door, uh, which I understand we had actually talked to them about. Hey, uh, since they're going to tear the place down, what if we install had a new door installed? Could we have this one? And I think. Uh, Trent stole the idea and kept the door. I know he bought a place in New Orleans, rather. That's about an hour away from me. Uh, he bought an old funeral home there. Actually, my, my younger brother and his roommate lived in the old funeral home uh, and had to vacate after Reznor bought the uh, bought the uh, premises, the old funeral home. And I think that he stored the door there, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, after they you know moved out of the house. But it was really kind of like a big studio, you know, the the uh tate house really like when you first walked in where tate and uh what was his name that was tied at the other end of the rope um the hairstylist uh sebring um where their bodies lay is was this i don't know like i don't know hundred track you know mixing board 
uh, and then uh, in the I remember out in the the little guest house where what was the guy's name uh, that was there that that came out the next morning and never knew anything had happened was it Kellogg or something like that I I can't recall yeah, but I anyway so. back in that uh, little area was this enormous set of uh, drums so I guess they had recorded uh, drums separately in there but. Yeah, the house really was, I mean, yeah, there were bedrooms and the kitchen and all that, but the place just was, you know, c cables and all that. I want to say that was around the time of the Downward Spiral or whatever. I, I know I, Marilyn I, Manson recorded his first album in there. Oh, oh, that's right. I heard that. I, I did hear that uh, Manson, uh, Marilyn Manson, the, the band had recorded there. I was never a huge fan of Nine Inch Nails or Marilyn Manson, so... Yeah, I'm going to be 65 pretty soon. You know, my my rock and roll days go back to the Beatles and the Stones and even into the 50s. So I was sort of unimpressed by that. And I think it kind of maybe the people that live there were kind of like relieved. It's like, oh, God, and, you know, thank God he's not a you know a groupie or whatever. Uh, none of us really. Well, you know, Andrew kind of like was was into it. But uh, we were there strictly for the house. You know, we were there. Uh, I remember Andrew taking the uh, grate, the uh, gutter, the, I guess it was probably a drainage gutter grate, uh, where uh, Folgers, by Abigail Folgers' body, when you, the picture that you see of her body lying on the lawn, next to it there's this big cast iron grate. The fucking thing weighed like, a, <laughs> like 75 pounds. Andrew's like, I'm taking this, man. So. <laughs> So we all got some kind of, you know, weird little souvenirs or whatever, uh, you know, when we left there. And the, the people were just as generous and, and wonderful as they could be. And we also went out to Spawn Ranch and, uh, you know, where else did we go uh, on that tour? Of course, we did the Hollywood Cemeteries tour and that kind of stuff. But, yeah, it was a great trip. That was a really awesome vacation. But I was so glad to get there before they tore the house down. It's kind of a shame that that, that place is gone. That was our interview with Rick Staten. You can head on over to Rick's Patreon page at patreon.com slash the ghoul can't help it and uh, follow his current film projects and what he's doing. And uh, you can donate to that and get in involved in the, the production of that stuff, which he goes more in depth on on the next episode that that we have coming up. So uh, in the meantime, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash criminal perspective for exclusive classified episodes containing inmate interviews and other great content. Um, we'll do this again next week. Thanks for listening. Leave us a, a review on Apple, send us an email and tell Andrew how stupid he is and, and ugly and how you don't like him. And then uh, we'll read them here on the show. All right. Or you can tell Chris how uh, ugly his face tattoos are and uh, how he's unemployable and all that <laughs> stuff and how he's going to get old and regret it. Everyone else does. Why not? Uh, so, yeah. That is going to hell, too. Yeah. <laughs> we look forward to uh, all your negative comments. So uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll do it again next week with part two of our interview with Rick Staten.